Uh, well, first, let me say it is a tremendous honor and privilege to be here. I got to know your pastor this summer and heard him and the diesel both teach and uh, was greatly, greatly blessed. And it's a really honor to be here. And before I tell you a little bit about the book, why I wrote it, what I'm praying God will do, let me tell you what it's not. Uh, this book is not about cultural wars. Uh, this book is not about the evils of the media, the educational system. Uh, it, it has no political agenda. Uh, it's not about uh, how to bring America back to God. Uh, this book is very clearly targeted and designed for a very, very special group of people. This is for the church of Jesus Christ. The comments and the content uh, are not geared toward people in America who uh, live in different ways, who disagree, who have all kind of different lifestyles in many different forms. Uh, this is written to those of us who unashamedly say we believe the Bible is God's word. We've had a supernatural birth from within and the spirit of God lives within us. We believe Jesus is both fully man and fully God, that he died on a cross for us in actual space-time history, rose from the dead, paid for our sins, and when we trusted him, the Spirit of God has literally taken up residence inside our bodies. That he gave us a mission and a commission to spread the love and the wonderful news that he has forgiven whosoever would believe. This is who it's targeted toward. And so what I'm, what I'm seeing more and more, I've been in the Bay Area for uh, plus or minus 20 years. Um, I lived in Santa Cruz for 12 and a half years where we had the highest per capita of lesbians in any city in America. We have more satanic bookstores than Boulder, Colorado or Sedona, Arizona. Um, 96% of the people where I live in the greater Bay Area do not go to church anywhere. We're the most diverse community in all of America, even more than New York. Where I live in the Silicon Valley, 51% of the people speak another language other than English when they go home. 31% of them have been born outside the United States. And so this is a message to us about how do we bring light, not argue, and not be silent. Uh, I'm deeply, deeply concerned. Last year I did a little uh, circuit, I would say. And I taught a number of different places and, you know, I have this full-time job at the church. But I got to speak at a number uh, of universities and colleges and then some uh, special events with Campus Crusade. So I've never been as close to the pulse of 20-somethings as I am right now. And for the last four or five years, beginning in Atlanta in the last five, I guess, we've had a Bible study in our house with people in their 20s. And so um, some of you probably can't fathom the radical shift that's happened even in the last five years, let alone the last 50. And so to, to give you just a little touch of what's happening, I'm going to give you a timeline about the radical changes that have happened in the last 50 years. And then I, I want you to look at these big areas that are so controversial that either when they come up and you're at work or you're out with some people and you don't know where they're coming from and you're just silent, you don't say anything because you think, I don't want to get into an argument. Or, boy, I know what they think. Or, you know, if this comes up, I don't know what to say. So the great majority of Christians are silent. Or we've all been around some people that start yelling and screaming. And just, I mean, they are so passionate about, quote, truth. But there's no love. And the last thing we want to do is come off like that. And so in the midst of that, something is happening in the church of Jesus Christ that's changing from the inside out that we have to pay attention to. 
and really address. Um, so these, let me go first with a, a quick timeline. And some of this will be very familiar and others you just may go, wow. Uh, 1950s. Now, when I say beliefs and behavior, I, you know, on the right is righteousness, and I just hypothetically made this up, a plus 10. On the left is wickedness, a minus 10. And just think of the most righteous, pure things and the most wicked things. And then I put in the 1950s in terms of general beliefs and behavior collectively. I'm not at all saying everybody lived this way. I'm talking about the values and beliefs of America in general and that of the general public. Uh, marriage was a covenant. Uh, the divorce rate at that time was in the low single digits. Uh, sexual purity was something that was assumed. Uh, you saw the video there. Actually, it's 2% of uh, girls by their senior year were sexually active in the 1950s. Uh, it's 80% now. It was about 4% boys. It's now 90%. Uh, you, you see that um, abortion was illegal. And both inside and outside the church, homosexuality was viewed as a sin. Now, what, what you see is in this chart, though, is wherever the church is, if we're light and salt, the world, you know, we kind of expose and pull, we create a, a culture as a byproduct. And so the worldview at that time was, you know, Donna Reed, Leave it to Beaver, My Three Sons, a little bit later. And, and so the world, the people that got divorced back then were only movie stars. Of course, there were back uh, alley abortions. Uh, sex certainly happened, but homosexuality as an issue was both in the public, the private, and the world sector was viewed as a sin and a non-negotiable behavior that was frowned upon. It's 50 years ago. Fast forward 50 years, uh, the 2000s. Uh, this is the beliefs and behavior of the church. Uh, I will, we'll talk a little bit about why. In, in two chapters, I'll talk about how... This happened so quickly in 50 years. I wrote my uh, master's thesis at West Virginia University on the philosophical basis for teaching ethics. In other words, is there a right and is there a wrong? And how do we move from absolute truth to relative truth? And for some of you philosophy majors, you'll really enjoy those quick little chapters. But I start all the way back with uh, everything from the Reformation to the Renaissance to the Enlightenment to German philosophers to the shifting to the seminaries to the modernist movement to situational ethics to the me generation existentialism to the 80s to the greed, me, greed of me, then the me generation of the 90s. And then when we went from existentialism where truth is validated by this is my experience and this is how I feel. For some of you with a little white hair, if it feels good, do it. Make love, not war. We're the chance, remember? Um, you have your truth, I have my truth. I'm okay, you're okay. And then that move by the time in the 2000s to pluralism. Every single opinion about any issue has exactly equal value. And that's the world that we're living in. But I'll get into that maybe a little bit later. But in the 2000s, we have uh, in the church, the divorce rate is roughly the same as outside the church. 65% of all girls that have abortions self-identify as Christians, either Catholic, Protestant, evangelicals. Um, sexual immorality, cohabitation in Bible-believing evangelical churches is about 35% of people who are either living together or uh, having casual sex and in most Bible-believing evangelical churches, it's like, and I don't see a problem with that. At our church, I live in California, and as early as 15 years ago when people came to get married in our church, I know the pastor, I know what he's preaching, we're very good friends, it's me. <laughs> 
And yet, we had to put a, a little note when someone wanted to get married, are you currently living together? And about 50 or 60% of the people were. And uh, where I came from, we, we would ask them that, and they would say, is there something wrong with that? I mean, um, only 5% of the people went to church. Uh, our, our little new members class, one of the first things we told them was, the really big numbers are, are called chapters, and the little numbers are called verses. There's a big, big, thick section we'll get to later, but the one about Jesus is pretty small, and we'll start there. They never heard of Adam and Eve. They didn't know who Noah was. Completely biblically illiterate. Uh, complete change. And so what you see is that um, in, in our day today in the church, there's a, a huge movement of revisionist. And, and the revisionist movement is reframing clear biblical texts about homosexuality and making the case, lots of books, lots of, quote, arguments, lots of debate. I was just in Grand Rapids, and at a major, major bookstore, they had a, a Christian who was a homosexual who believes in monogamous homosexual relationships, uh, a Christian who, who speaks on that, and they were having a dialogue, and this is happening all over America. When I've been on college campuses everywhere, uh, there's a, a very significant evangelical university that has a gay club in Southern California. Uh, when I spoke on different campuses, not that some of these, I mean, these are bellwether institutions. Not, not that the institutions have changed necessarily their doctrine, but there's a huge shift and the pressure on our young people uh, because of what they've heard and maybe what they haven't heard is to assume some of the huge shifts in these values uh, are, are fine. And so uh, when that happens inside the church, Notice uh, the world's behavior. Can, could have anyone imagined 50 years ago that how many millions of babies would be killed every year? Could everyone imagine that you would have 50 channels instead of three, and on any given night you can probably get three or four different reality shows of documentaries talking about someone who chopped up his wife, killed his wife, uh, held these girls captive for 10 years? I mean, do, do you understand if, if, if you were in a like in, in Frozen, and then 50 years came up, and you watched the average media, Netflix, and the level of violence that is just mainstream, the number, I mean, the world has changed. This is where the church is, and so what we have is, when the light gets dim and the salt is not very salty, then what you see is the culture begins to shift farther and farther toward wickedness. Well, how did it happen and uh, the book talks about this and how, here's the question, here's the way to frame it. How could 4,000 years of biblical morality be changed in 50? Now think of that. There's been lots of ups and downs, but literally 4,000 years, I mean, the Ten Commandments were written quite a while ago, right? And, and even in cultures where people maybe didn't follow them, everyone knew this is true, this is right, this is wrong. What I want you to get, human sexuality, homosexuality, and abortion, to name three, are really not the issues, they're the symptoms. And as volatile and polarized as politics are, it's really not the issue, it's yet another symptom, and the whole environment issue, how we have not communicated and not understood what the scripture said, and not blazed the trail, has created yet something else. 
And so uh, I'm going to give you, uh, I tried to take the whole book, I'm, I'm a visual person, and I tried to get like one picture to give the whole book, and because uh, I think the relationships are as or more important. So this is, uh, this is the Chip Ingram iceberg illustration. And iceberg, you know, is only 10% of it is above the water. And so what you see is that there's three major themes, sexual immorality, politics, and the environment. Under sexual immorality, and basically abortion is, is really about sexual immorality. Usually it uh, was, was used as a, as a very poor contraceptive uh, historically and still today. But all, all those issues, abortion, cohabitation, pornography, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, all of those are against the biblical norm. Now, here's what I want you to think about. When you would open your Old Testament and when you look at all the idolatry, and the idolatry is how Israel was what? 70 years in captivity and God's judgment. Nearly every idolatry was always paired with what? Sexual immorality. Under every tree. Uh, if you would go to the first century Greek culture, and I had some chances to go with your pastor, and whether it's the Temple of Diana, during the first century Roman rule Greek culture, you could go any day to get male or female prostitutes. The average man, if you were an affluent man in that culture, you were a three-woman man. In fact, that's why Titus says you need to be a one-woman man if you're going to be an elder. But a three-woman man was you had a wife, and she would give you lineage and children. Uh, you would have a girl that would be a, a slave in your home that understood that she needed to provide sex whenever you wanted it. And then you could go to the temples and have sex whenever you wanted it. Hetero or homo. I mean... It, you need, we need to understand that the early church grew and thrived in the midst of unbelievable sexual immorality. And the word pornea, when, when the Apostle Paul uses it, is a very broad word that includes all these things. Second, here's what I want you to get. When you think of abortion, sexual immorality, and the others, rather than these issues and who fights and these roles and what's our role, until we understand, here's what the enemy has done. The very th first thing that happened after God created the earth and he wanted to make all things good, he created life. It's the most precious commodity in the universe. Life. What does abortion do? Death. We kill our own race. The first thing he instituted in terms of relationship for joy, pleasure, connection, reproduction was marriage. What does pornography addictions do? What does adultery do? What does fornication do? What does cohabitation do? What does homosexuality do? It's a direct assault on the very institution of the creation of God's design. And then when people get married and they multiply, every culture has to figure out how we're going to live together and how power and people live together is called politics. And so what we see now is completely polarized politics where nothing gets done. And then the last thing God did is he gave us this, this planet to steward and it becomes the environment. And so depending on your view of truth, it's the mother earth that we worship and we're pantheists or we're stewards of a planet entrusted to us. Two very different worldviews. Now what I want you to see is these are the symptoms and if you only see them as symptoms, what Christians have historically done is either said nothing or thrown grenades at the other side or now we throw them at each other. 
and it's very heated and we're very angry. And so we blew up clinics or we screamed or we yelled. And in the name, the two responses have been truth, truth, truth with no love or love, love, love with no truth. And what I would say is that Jesus spoke very clearly. We need to bring the truth and love. We need to bring light. We need to be able to build relationships with people that have had abortions and are living with that. We need to build relationships with people in the homosexual community, understand we love and care for them, and there's dignity, and yes, we disagree. And I'll talk a little bit more about how to do that, and I do in the book, of how do you build a bridge and how you can be so different and get at the presuppositional level. Uh, When I taught this entire series at our church, when I did the one on homosexuality, I interviewed a man that had come out of the lifestyle with his wife, And he told the journey about what it's like to be a 12-year-old boy with same-sex attraction. And because no one in the church talks about that, he assumed he was a homosexual. Well, how how many 12-year-old boys have heterosexual attraction? And thought, man, I don't know any 12-year-old boy or girl for that matter. Well, does that make them a, a sex addict? Of course not. But see, if you don't understand developmentally how these things happen, if you can't talk about them, if there's not then what we have is a huge, huge problem. So how do you love people, build relationships, have the bar of righteousness that doesn't move, but love people in ways that draw them to Christ? Now, there are some areas, no matter what you do and how you say it, it uh, you get criticized, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But below the level, if that's the symptoms, those are present symptoms, underneath that, the first level is what I call past philosophical assumptions. The real issue is truth. And we have two options with truth. Is it relative or is it absolute? I'm indebted here to, uh, I wrote my thesis based on a lot of Francis Schaeffer's work. People with relative truth say, you know, truth changes. There's situational ethics. This is true one day. You know, lying is okay sometimes. Stealing is okay. This is this okay. And so everyone has their own view of truth. However, nobody lives consistently with relative truth. I remember defending my thesis, and uh, there was these four doctors in front of me and asking me all these questions, and uh, it was a time when existentialism was just thriving, and the one guy said, you know, there's no way, truth can't be absolute, no one can ever say anything is absolutely true, and and I said, you live that way every, every day, all the time, Dr. Ostro, and he said, no, I don't, I said, your kids have a bedtime? He said, yeah, I said, why? Well, because I'm the father, I said, well, who are you to set your intolerant rules on your children like that? He said, well, you know, come on. No, I said, practically, what about it? And then I remember telling him, you know, we were getting in this dialogue. I said, okay, Dr. Oster, how about this? There's no absolute truth, right? Anybody, if it feels good, do it. Everyone has the right to do whatever right as long as, yeah. I said, if someone walks into your house, he goes, boom, boom, boom. You're three kids, bam, bam, bam. And then he walks in, he goes, that felt really good. Puts his 45 back and walks out. And, you know, he just space. I said, who are you to say that killing someone is wrong? See, all of us, we draw the line different places. We all believe in absolute truth. You can believe or not believe in gravity, but if you believe in it and step off a three-story building or don't believe it and step off a three-story building, the results are roughly the same. (laughs) And think about this. You can believe or not believe what God has said about marriage and the union. You can believe or not believe what he said about sexuality. You can believe or not believe what he said about stewarding the earth. If you violate, whether you believe it or not, there's the consequences. By this time, um, we now have such research. Uh, That was my background was in psychology. And people that cohabitate, 
About 60% of them eventually get married. But here's the research now. Ten years, a couple cohabitates, they live together. God says that's not good. There's a lot of things you should test drive. This is not one of them. If you cohabitate ten years later, whether you marry or not, only one out of ten couples are still together. How, how do you not tell people the truth, but with a, but with a tear in your eye, with softness in your voice, and it's not like shame on you and get with the program. This is what God says. He's a good God. He's designed the world. He's designed the earth. He's designed marriage. He's designed sexuality. He has only your best in mind. And he has absolute truth. Truth became relative through that existential... Um, Thing that I talked about, and I, I, I'm always, I'm personally interested in those things. And as I've given this talk a few times, the guys that are traveling with me go, "Chip, you just lose people. That is really not very important." So I'm skipping that. <laughs> but when, so, so if these are the symptoms, and the real issue is truth, is it relative or absolute? Here's the big question: Who gets to say what's true? And you have two options. Culturally interpreted, or is there a final authority? And remember, this is, this is, this is written to the church. I mean, I mean, this is America. It's an amazing country. I love this country. I've had to travel all around the world in my life. You know what? You can do whatever you want. You can have sex with anybody that you want. It's America. And, and we're not called to judge anyone outside the church. But inside the church, here's what we've said. We've said the Bible is God's word. Here's what's happening now in the church. Truth, instead of absolute, whether I agree with it or not, here's how truth has been reformed little by little by little. Existentialism says, well, this is how I feel. And if I really feel this way, that validates the truth. So I sit with a couple or a close friend of mine right now that's living with his girlfriend, and, and here's what you hear. Well, I just, I just really feel it's so right, and if we really love one another, how could it be wrong? Or if you read multiple books on the homosexual movement inside the evangelical church, one of the major arguments is we really love one another and God is a God of love. How could two people who really love one another, not a God of love, want us to be together? In other words, we validate what is right, what is wrong, what is true based on how we feel, how we think. And then in more recent years, the community we take the Bible and choose which parts of this and in the community God will reveal to us in this age what is true and what is not. That is very different than the original authors had a very clear intent and it was true a thousand years ago, it was true two thousand years ago, it was true three thousand years ago and we need to study it in context to know exactly what it meant and said to the first century New Testament teaching, and then know what are the timeless principles, but the commands here are as true today as they were there. What we're seeing in our day is a casual reframing. This is not the authority. There is a salad bar mentality. This is an evangelical church. It's when 30% of our teenagers, and, and you would probably be surprised how many in your own church, believe that same-sex relationships are okay. And when 30 plus percent of our 18 to 29 year olds may intellectually say this, but their behavior says, I mean, I just, they look at me and I just don't get it. I mean, we love each other. I mean, sex is sex. I mean, it's kind of like, I understand what it says, but 
I mean, that's kind of antiquated. I like do nine out of the ten commands. And I think God grades on the curve and everything's fine. I mean, I mean this, this is the mindset that we have. And then ask yourself, here, here, just step back so that you have a heart of compassion. Um, what's happening to relationships? What's happened to families? What, what happened when abortion was legalized? What happened when we went to no-fault divorce? What happened when people felt like we could live together? By the way, that's just not a younger people's problem. It's amazing how many seniors are finding that scene, and a lot of it's economically driven. See, what we have a deterioration of the very fabric of life, of marriage, of family, of the political system, and the planet. And, and wickedness is winning. But we're, we're the light. We're the, we're the people that God has assigned to make the big difference. But when the salt isn't salty, what did Jesus say? It's not good for anything. If the light isn't bright. And so what you have in our day is nothing new. In fact, the First Peter, you might jot this down if you have something. It's a great passage to First Peter 1, 14 through about 16. He says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed any longer to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Ignorance, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your behavior. Be ye holy because I am holy. And, and the word holy means, it comes from the root word of uh, something that's set apart, but it's wholeness, it's pure. It's pure in our thinking, it's pure in our priorities, it's pure with our money, it's pure with our sexuality. And the early church... I just, I just want people to remember, the early church was a lot like where I've ministered. There was, there's, lot, there's homosexual people and heterosexual people and there's no laws. And, but what, I, what I've learned is this, is when people are radically loved by people who are living, not perfect lives, but radically passionate, Christ-like lives, I will tell you, whole communities can be turned around. But it doesn't happen by us in our Bible studies talking about one another and saying this is what we believe and what's with all those weird people. It, you you got to love them. And, you, you know, we, I remember sitting down with the, um, the mayor of, uh, and the owner of a bookstore that were both uh, gay and, um, you know, an evangelical Christian in this town, a couple, couple hundred thousand in our county in Santa Cruz were, I mean, the label was... Stupid, Bible-thumping, anti-intellectual, dangerous people. And I got to know him, and we had lunch one day, and he was a radical Berkeley who graduated at the same time I did, and I radically found Jesus, and my life went that way, and his life went that way. And, and I said, we're both in the same town, and I don't think he had met, I think he said later, a, a thinking Christian, at least his perspective. You know, the stereotypes that we have of other people, they have those of us. And those don't get broken down unless you actually sit down and love people and, and treat them with great dignity and you don't go on Facebook and say stuff about them and you don't make these political comments and, and fire stuff off. All that does is alienate. All it is is hate. And when we got done, we, we agreed that the HIV problem in runaway teens was a huge issue in our church. And we gathered 40 or 50 churches and we came together for over a 10-year period. And we, we drove HIV patients to their doctor and we took them to the store. And we... 
runaway teens and we addressed the poverty issue and we had tens, I mean, little, just tons and tons of food that we provided for the poor and, and the churches we teamed together and we'd worship together and the pastors, we got together and, and you know what, 10 years later, Luis Palau came, we had 80,000 people, I, where I'm from, 80,000 Christians is like, are you kidding? On a beach, worshiping and the paper that was super progressive, Santa Cruz thinks Berkeley's too far right, to give you an idea. And, and you know what? Here's what I saw is we built relationships and the guy looked at me and he goes, you know what? I, I totally disagree with you and I totally disagree with you. I respected his intellectual integrity, but we built a platform. Uh, when I taught on homosexuality, I remember walking. I just always kind of walk around and find out who's here and I bumped into the guy and, and he looked down. I give out some notes. He goes, this is going to be really interesting. I said, why do you say that? Because I've been in lifestyle my whole life. He said, my friend here... I guess you tell people to invite people, says, what do you say to a gay friend? I'm his gay friend. And I said, man, I'm so glad you came. And we were right in the middle, and we started talking a little bit. And, and I said, it was a Saturday night service. I said, um, he didn't know we were filming it, so I was pretty nervous. And I said, when I get done, will you do me like a huge favor? And he goes, I don't know, because we kind of built a good relationship in you know, five, ten minutes. Would you come and critique me? Because here's, here's what you've got to know. I want to treat your position with dignity and accuracy. I don't want to throw around statistics that people have said. I don't want to do anything that when you're sitting here, you would sort of hear that subtle, you know, I'm saying this, but I'm dissing you. Okay? Would, would you give me honest feedback? He goes, yeah. And so I got done, and he came down, and um, I said, well, you know, report card. Like, well, how'd I do? He said, well, you blew my mind the way you started. I said, what do you mean? He said, you apologize to the gay community. Well, I had to. He said, but you said, you said there's this banner. And, you know, most, most people in the lifestyle, when they hear Christian, they, I mean, think of all the brands of Christians. So I told him, there's, there's been a lot of Christians. And, and I know, I mean, there, two weeks ago, there were two guys came in, and they were holding hands, and I know they're in the gay life. They're searching for God. So I said, some of us, you have heard people yell and scream and hold up placards and tell you you're going to hell, and, and you just think, those, those Christians are angry and dangerous. And they were all truth and no love and nothing could be less Christ-like. And then there's other people and they say they're Christians and they say, hey, you can stay just the way you are and you can marry one another and you, know, you can be bishops and priests. And, and so I said, they're all love but no, no truth. And I said, here, I'm, I'm, I'm in the Bay Area. The average male lifespan of a gay homosexual is 43 years old. How can I tell someone I love you and care about you, I know what's causing you to live 30 years less than everybody else. You need to hear it with a tear in my eye and without condemnation that I care. And when you build relationships like that and tell people the truth, I will tell you what, God works in their heart. And so this book is about how do you do that? How do you bring the truth and love on these symptoms, knowing that as you talk with them, if you don't understand, this is how they're going to view truth, and then inside the church, here's what's happening. We have a whole generation of people that are, are kind of looking at the Bible that they can pick and choose. They don't believe in the authority of Scripture. But they don't even know they don't believe in that because they don't even know what the issues are. And I, I, in my little college tour a year ago at these universities and Campus Crusade and other groups, I, I, I often did something like, how many of you have ever heard a message on homosexuality? They're all 20-something. No hands go up. How many have ever heard a message on human sexuality? You know, sprinkling. Yeah, yeah. What would you hear? Wait. 
Okay, thank you. Um, how many on abortion? A few hands go up. How many have ever heard a message or in your you know, youth group or college on, on the environment? No hands go up. See, I think we are so prone to kind of have an us and them mentality and think the battle is in the symptoms. And we haven't taught our own kids and had honest discussions about sexuality, homosexuality. What's the role in politics of the individual and of the church? What's our role in blazing the trail in the environment? Because you know what? They're bombarded. I mean, they're bombarded at school. They're bombarded on Facebook. They're bombarded in Netflix. They're bombarded everywhere. And, and when they don't hear a reasoned, clear, loving response articulated and modeled, what we have is exactly what we've sown. And, and I will tell you what, if, if in the current trends, if you've, uh, uh, there's an interesting book, I'm not quite done yet, so I'm always a, a little leery of recommending books I'm not quite done with, but just statistically, the, the book is called The Great uh, Evangelical Recession. And it is, it is a book of facts that talk about where our journey and our movement is going or not going and splintering that is well worth reading. Well, as I wrap it up, I just want to... Um, say that this is not new. And so uh, listen to how in a pagan world, Paul spoke to the believers. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. (laughs) Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. I mean, in that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral. By the way, again, that's that overarching word. It could be fornicators, could be adulterers, could be in a homosexual lifestyle. Or greedy or idolaters or slander, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And then he gives the basis. He goes, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And grammatically, in a place like this, you've heard all this before, grammatically, it's inferred very dramatically, none. We don't judge people outside the church. People in other lifestyles, that's none of my business. I'm to befriend them and love them. By contrast, are you not to judge those inside the church? Grammatically, of course. God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. One of the biggest myths in the church is, who are you to judge me? Well, you're judging me. And then I'm going to use an illustration I've never used, but since I kind of know you, I'll I'll, I'll say this, because I wouldn't use it because I would want you to think like I watch this all the time. But I was flipping the channels, and it was L.A. Preachers, Los Angeles Preachers. I don't know if you've ever seen the show. I caught, caught like five minutes of it. And they're sitting around talking. I'm just looking like, so the one guy, you know, they get up and you know how they, they have these conversations and the camera talks to this guy and talks to this guy and, you know, like all the reality shows. So the one guy apparently married this guy and he found out later that he was living with his girlfriend and having sex with her before they got married. And he was saying, hey, you know, you didn't tell me that. I put my reputation on the line and I married you. And here you are, uh, you know, you were living this girl. You made me look bad. Here's what the pastor says. Hey, you judging me, man. Who are you to judge me? Don't you judge me, man. Um, I'm not judging you. No, you're judging me. We have come to the point in the church that instead of exercising loving accountability, kindness and confrontation, exercising Matthew 18 when a couple is living together, 
Exercising Matthew 18, when a couple has a divorce that is not a biblical divorce, it wasn't immorality, they weren't abandoned by an unbeliever. When a person begins to get involved in the homosexual lifestyle, lovingly, kindly, holding each other accountable, when someone, one of your friends, you realize, man, on his phone, he's logging on to the net, and he's on porn sites, you are required to judge them in love, bring it to their attention, and call them on it because you care. In fact, in chapter 6, he'll go on to say, to make the point, you know, what do I hear about all these disputes? You've taken them to the courts and things like that. Is there no one wise among you who can judge? I can't believe this. Don't you all understand that you're going to judge angels, that you'll judge this whole world? But we have bought into the, you know, part of the, If it feels good, do it, and I have your thing, and I have your truth. Well, don't judge me. Well, that's from Matthew 7, 1 and 2, and it's about people's motives, and it's Jesus talking about self-righteousness. If we don't judge one another, using that word in love and accountability, and then notice the application. The application is when, when people live immoral lives, yet say, I'm a brother or sister, you have to make some dramatic steps in relationship with them so they feel the consequences of that. And we don't do that. And so the great majority of people in America, they work with a Christian who's sleeping with his girlfriend. They work with a Christian who logs on like they log on to porn on the internet. They work with someone that leaves work early like they do. And then, you know, we say, well, don't you want to come to our church? You want to hear about our Jesus? And they're going, why? You're just like me. And so he goes on to say in chapter 6, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. See, I think that's what's happened. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, or drunkards, nor slanders, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, notice the tense of the verb, were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. And so let's get to the solution side, and I'll finish with this, and we'll open it up for questions. Okay, what do we do? I mean, one, if you, if you read this book and you start pondering some of the statistics, you either get just super discouraged, or you say, what? No, wait a second. I think our world is a lot like the first century, isn't it? So we're, we're, not, we're not the majority view anymore. Is the goal, did the first century try to get their rights, take over the government, get Rome to believe? How did the world really change? Listen to what I think is one of the greatest sermons ever about how it all happened. And it's personal. It starts with me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's what I want to do. That's what I want my kids want to do. That's the men I meet with. What would happen if we hungered? What if we were passionate? For what? To be right with God. To be right with people. To be morally pure in every way. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. What if instead of being down on people out there, what if if we were like God is to us and didn't give them what they deserved? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. What if our number one passion wasn't success or our kids in sports or, you know, what the next big deal is? What if we made knowing God, seeing God, our number one priority? 
and our lives were just dramatically different from the inside out. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. I can't tell you what it's like to be a peacemaker, to see someone in the lifestyle or a couple living together or someone that's been through a couple divorces or someone that's had three abortions and you get to be a peacemaker and you let them see grace over here and love over here and you treat them with dignity and you love them where they're at and you share the truth and then you, the bar of righteousness is there. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Notice, not for being weird, but for being righteous. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, I, I think this next line is the one that we need to embrace, and it's embraced around the world, but it's not embraced here. Because we've always had the majority view. And some of the Christian community is really bent out of shape, and we're trying to cling to our rights. Now, and, and the whole political one, we have rights, we have opportunity, you should vote. You should make a difference in America, don't get me wrong. But I will tell you this, if you are consistent with Scripture, you will be persecuted in the days ahead. Because if you hold to certain things in Scripture that Jesus said, you will be viewed as a bigot, and you will be misunderstood. And we have the great majority of Christians shying away, being silent, changing doctrine, because they don't want to be politically incorrect in, in a world that's getting very politically correct. But Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And when you have a tear in your eye and you care deeply for people, and you're living the life, and yet you take a stand, no matter how kindly you say certain things in this environment, people are going to be down on you. And are you willing to receive that? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You're the light of the world. You don't put the light under a bushel. You put it out. Let your, here's, how the, here's how it's going to change. Let your good works be seen. Your good works, engaging the culture, making a difference, befriending people, loving people that aren't like you, demonstrating that you care, and at the same time, not wavering one bit on, thus says the Lord, on those controversial issues. But you say it with a calm voice, and you say it as you're helping them. Finally, we can make a difference, and uh, I give you three quick things to do, and then we'll Kick it around. Number one, educate yourself, your family, friends, and church. So honestly, it's why I wrote the book and why we made a small group DVD. Most parents, where, what do I do? Most grandparents, junior high, high school, college, small groups. How do you, how do you get this stuff on the table? And, and what I do in the book, especially in the homosexual issue, I really model how to talk with someone in the lifestyle where they feel loved and dignified and yet the bar is clear and then do a lot of research on some of the myths about being born that way. Second, model a biblical life. Lifestyle, and third, engage your world with light, not heat. I mean, we need to be proactive. How to do that? A mild sales pitch. Read the book. <laughs> do the small group study. And maybe share the messages with someone uh, by way of DVD or MP3 or some means like that. So um, why don't you come up? Let's do a little Q&A and we'll have some fun together. And I, I always start these with the freedom to let you know that the answer to some of yours will be, I don't know. That's a really good question. So now that we got that one out of the way, I'm ready. So we, we've got about 15 minutes. And uh, so we have a mic to my left and a mic to my right at the front of the aisles.
If you would, uh, just stand up and go down to the mic. And if there's a line, just get in line. And please uh, state your name so he can dialogue with you. And then please uh, ask questions. Don't make statements. Um, and keep it to one question. And we'll run through those for about 15 minutes. And, and then I'll close us out. So. Somebody's always got to break the ice. There we go. The ice has been broken. I'm Charlotte. I'm nervous to say this, but I have a question that I'd like to ask you. Um, so on church on Sunday, Ted made this illustration about um, a Chevy commercial that he saw, and it was a, a gay couple and their kids buying a Chevy. And so he wrote them and said he wouldn't be buying Chevys anymore. And he even said he fell in love with Chevys before he fell in love with women. (laughs) So anyway, on the way home from church, my husband and I were talking about how we really appreciated him taking that stand and that we agreed with that. Our two teenage daughters in the back seat said, oh, that made us so mad. And we were like, oh, what, the commercial? No. Sorry, Ted. (laughs) But that Ted said... He wouldn't buy Chevys anymore. And so my question to you is, as a parent who does disagree with that, how, how do we relay the message to our teenage daughters who are absolutely growing up in a totally different culture where not only is homosexuality okay and tolerated, but almost glorified? Yes, yes. Um, how, how do we... So, so we, ha- we tried to have this conversation with, with our teenage daughters at brunch that day, um, without trying to, you know, get into a, uh, a conflict with them, because we know this is the culture they're being brought up into, right. but we do want to teach truth to our children. That's why we are here at Christ Chapel, because they teach truth. Well, I wasn't here, so, and, and uh, so <laughs> making a comment about what your pastor said when I wasn't here would just not be very smart, so I'm not going <laughs> to go down that path. Uh, and I don't know the context and all the rest. So let's talk about, at the core, is... Um, have you ever had a conversation or been in the Bible or talked about homosexuality at all with your children today? Absolutely. Yeah, several times. Yeah. See, I, I think you want to get them in the Scripture. Then I think you want them to understand um, uh, a little bit maybe more about the gay lifestyle. The one thing that's interesting is there's a, a number of myths. I, I actually, that chapter, I made the seven myths of the gay lifestyle. One is I'm born that way. And then we, we look at the actual studies in that, that purport to support that, that are very minimal and very flawed. Um, but I think uh, another thing is, is that, you know, one of the biggest myths, I think, is that um, when they say, I want to be married or uh, we need freedom, the, the actual sexual practice, especially among men, is um, it may be a bit graphic, but they need to understand um, the the medical issues that happen and why they die. Uh, they need to understand that even in, in a monogamous relationship, there's, there's a study done just recently of 100 gay men, and, and in a monogamous relationship to a male homosexual, that means we're emotionally monogamous, but we may have at least four to six other sexual encounters with other people during that year. So it's not exactly monogamous the way that heterosexuals think about this. And so, and I think the other thing is what you realize is what you've got on your hands is your, your kids, their view of scripture and their view of truth. In other words, the Bible says this, but they've heard this. And as one, as one girl wrote me on her Facebook, if you're going to ask me to choose between my gay friends and the Bible, I just want you to know I'm choosing my gay friends. 
So, so you got it. So if, if you fight up here, what you need to do is go and begin to talk about how do we know what's true? Have them, you know, discuss that. And, and that's, that's really kind of why I wrote this is to give people some tools to do that. So it's, um, you know, and I lived where I lived. I mean, when my boys went, when my boys were in where I went, this was 20 years ago. So what I knew is Santa Cruz is like, had the first gay parade. Santa Cruz um, is sort of like, they do see Berkeley as too far right. So um, what I knew was where we were 20 years ago is what would happen in the nation. And so my kids, they, they in, in junior high and high school, they had the, they called the triangle speakers. They came into every class, gay, lesbian, bisexual. Uh, they, they used an old, inaccurate study, said 10, at least 10% of you will be homosexual. Uh, you need to find out whether that's true by experimentation. And they had couples come in. and they, so, so that's what they've heard. And so we did a lot of talking about how do you know that's true and, and let your kids kind of dig some things out, even like a sort of a research paper. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you don't love those people, relate to those people, but it means you've got to be truthful and honest. I mean, among women, lesbians, cervical cancer, and there, there's just other issues that if you really care about people, uh, you have to say it nicely. And no matter how nicely you say it, it's not always met with a good response. But I've certainly seen a lot of people come out of the lifestyle and have relationships with people that we disagree still, but they've met a Christian and I've met someone in the lifestyle that is, that is taking away some of the heat and that sort of radical collision that we're seeing that's, that's going to drive our country apart. I think we can be a healing aspect of that. So thanks. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sally and I have I've been wrestling for a while with how to uh, have a voice on Facebook, how do I address um, same-sex marriage, state what I believe is the truth without just having an explosion response? Tell me, what, what do you want to share and why? You want to share something on Facebook? I have a friend who who has a son who's married yeah. to another man. And I've remained silent because I don't want to cause a major right. brouhaha. Right. But I don't, I'm uncomfortable with being silent. Yeah, you're, you're silent. You feel like you're validating the position. Exactly. I, I, yeah, I spent two hours with the man today who's a very close friend, whose daughter is a lesbian, who... Um, uh, was seduced by uh, an athletic coach in, in her college years. Uh, she's been up and down, almost came out of the lifestyle, then finally decided she's married another woman. They've adopted three kids. And so we've been in this journey together for about 15 years. And this, this tension is a really, really difficult one not to validate. And so he's taken a stand. He's been very kind, very loving, very open. Uh, but at the same time, he's not met with a lot of good response so mm -hmm. one is first rule is you have to have relationship I would never do it on Facebook I would never do I wouldn't write a letter um, if you really love someone it's really sensitive then you I would sit down with this person and and just say you know um, I want you to know how much I love you and I know you want me a person who's authentic and real and um, you know 
I was invited to the wedding and you kind of noticed I didn't show up or I don't know what this is, what it is. Yeah, and and I just distance. I just want you to know that um, uh, we have different presuppositions about this, but I want to keep our relationship. But for me to be authentic, you need to you need to know how I think and feel uh, just like I'm trying to be understanding of you. Mm -hmm. um, let me let me model something real quickly for you, because here, here's what I can tell you. I've given this talk in a number of cities and guess guess what all the questions are about. I mean, literally, or I don't know how many uh, of the, you know, like those radio things you do and call-ins and, okay. So, I'll, I'll, and I'll try and do this quickly. Uh, I'm sitting across from uh, someone who's in the lifestyle. Uh, I've, 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 I care. I've built a relationship. They know I care about them. I'm not down on them, quote, in terms of personally. They really get in my case, because I'm a pastor and they've heard me preach probably, they understand that we really disagree. And it's, this is, either it's sort of a, a gray area and I've now built relationship and now I want to do what you're talking about. And so, one, I, I always ask permission. Um, you know, we're getting be, to be friends and it's obvious we disagree on some really important things. And I would like permission to really talk about something that's very sensitive. Could I do that? And almost always, yeah. Um, I want to make sure I really know where you're coming from. And I want you to know where I'm coming from. And so, could I, could I give this a try? And I think this is where you're coming from. Uh, I believe that you've been told or taught that you were born gay. Uh, second, therefore, homosexuality is your identity. Would, would that be fair to say? Um, I mean, you were born this way, and whether you believe God made you this way, or you're just born this way... A third, if it's your identity, homosexuality in your mind is not what you do. It's who you really are. Would that be a fair statement? And they will nod yes. And if it's who you really are and you're made that way, then everything about homosexuality is normal and natural, right? It's just a different kind, but it's normal and natural. And they'll go, well, yeah. And since homosexuality is normal, natural behavior associated, it's just an alternative lifestyle. And so you just have a different view of a lifestyle and relationships, but it's not wrong, it's just different. And they would say yes. And then finally, if you're made that way, and it's normal and it's natural, then someone that you know what I believe about this, or other people say it's wrong, you feel like it's a civil rights issue. You really feel like I'm attacking your very being and your identity. It's like if I was saying, you know, it's because you're a woman or it's because you're an Indian or it's because you're Asian or it's because you're black. It's who you are and I'm attacking and therefore you get very hurt and you get very angry when this comes up. Would, would, would that be a fair assessment? Yes. I, I mean, I just... And then I, then I asked permission, could I... Um, now remember, we're talking about, this is written to Christians. Now, by the way, I, I can do that with both Christians and non-Christians. But, but I wrote this for Christians to write to that mom whose son says, like my friend, she goes to church in another part of Texas at a church that's an evangelical church that approves of same-sex relationships. So she says she's a sister. So... Um, Here's my presupposition. A sacred, uh, sex is sacred expression within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. When, when I open the Bible, when I see Genesis, when I see all of the Old Testament history, New Testament history, uh, that's what I see. Second, all sexual expression outside the bounds is immoral and prohibited. And, and these don't just include homosexuality. It's fornication, adultery, uh, 
you know, the others. Third, by logical implication, then a gay person is not born that way, and the thinking and behavior is learned or developed, or at some point chosen. The Bible speaks in a number of places of the sinfulness of homosexual behavior, but it doesn't classify it as a category of special or deeper sin. It addresses it as lusting or acting on same-sex attraction in the same way as other sexual sins. So, um, people who live together, people logging on porn, people who are sexually promiscuous, homosexuality, I want you to know that what the Bible condemns is any relationship that violates the marriage covenant. The Bible doesn't teach that people are guilty for having been tempted with same-sex attraction any more or any less than people tempted by heterosexual attraction. I cannot tell you how many parents have come to me in our church and said, my 12-year-old or my 14-year-old or my 15-year-old, because the world they live in, Dad, I'm gay. One man came just about two months ago and said, my 15-year-old daughter and my 13-year-old son both came to me and, you know, we're come to church here. Dad, I just want you to know I'm gay. And so I feel uncomfortable here. And I said, so, like, do they have a partner? Have they had sex? Oh, no. So... So they have a, some level, I've heard a number of things, they have a same-sex attraction, so they think they're gay. That's like someone with a heterosexual attraction thinking they're a sex addict. There's family of origin issues, parenting issues, all kind of issues that, that cause people to have same-sex attractions. That we've got to let them know that does not... So, you're not gay. Biblically speaking, homosexual is not something that you are identity, it's something that you do. And, and this, this, is, this is tender, and I say this in a good way. You say you really love this person. I want you to know that God would allow you to have a deep, wonderful, platonic, amazing relationship. You could be friends. You could go on picnics. You could be on Facebook. You could write each other's letters. You could express. Here's what the Bible says. You can't have sex. It prohibits sodomy. See, they've, they've made homosexuality an identity... And then it's who I am, and that's where you have to draw the line and help them see. If you you want a relationship, we all should have friends. But any time, then finally, if homosexual behavior is something that you do as a learned or chosen behavior, prohibited by God for your protection and for your good, then it's abnormal and unnatural. It's not a civil rights issue. It's a morality issue. So that's where I'm coming from. Now, they may agree or disagree, but I will tell you, when you get that on the table, and then if they're really honest and you have a relationship, they'll say, well, well, I was always told I'm born gay. Well, where did you hear that, and where did you learn it? And then we go down a road, and, and, and that's the conversation.